0: Snap Production. So just before 3 pm on Election Day, May 21, a text message went out to millions of Australian voters in marginal seats. Maybe you got one of them. It said that an illegal asylum seeker boat had been intercepted at sea and urged people to vote Liberal to keep our borders secure.
1: I've been here to stop this boat.
0: So this turned out to be the final act of the Morrison government, which has been described as disgraceful and shameful
2: by the new government. An unprincipled action by a government that was desperate and was prepared to do anything whatsoever to try
0: to retain power. So in this briefing, we look at the new report that lays out the blow-by-blow messages that were flying around on election day, pressuring the Home Affairs Department to publish this information.
2: I think it's very hard to argue that that is not a clear attempt to politicise the public service at exactly the time that is during election campaign when the public service is supposed to be left alone to do its job.
0: How the Morrison government pressured the Home Affairs Department on Election Day. That interview with Sean Kelly in just a moment. First, today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. I'm Tom Tilley. It is Wednesday, July 27.
3: The manly NRL Pride jersey story has blown up into a complete fiasco, with the club's coach, Des Hasler, giving a lengthy apology.
1: We wish to apologise to the LGBTQ community. However, instead of enhancing tolerance and acceptance, we may have hindered this.
0: Yeah, so this is the story we mentioned yesterday, where the NRL club introduced a Pride jersey. It had four rainbow stripes, where they used to just have white stripes. And seven players said they were blindsided by the move and didn't want to take the field in this jersey because of cultural and religious reasons.
3: Because the whole team has to wear the same jersey, that means the seven players won't be playing. And in a press conference yesterday, Manly coach Des Hasler basically apologized to everyone who could possibly be affected by this mishandled initiative, including the seven
1: players. I also feel for these players. They were not included in any of the discussions of the decision-making of the jersey. At a minimum, they should have been consulted.
0: Yeah, so it's a crazy situation. Um, There was a a lot of people criticising them yesterday, and so they called this press conference and just said, yep, we got this completely wrong. And I guess the the NRL has to realise that... As much as they would want everyone to support these kind of symbols, not everyone does. Um, In this competition, the the City Morning Herald says 50% of players have Pacific Islands heritage, which means most of them are Christians. So it puts them in a very difficult situation, antoine
3: yeah, and it's pretty a significant decision um, for the club to stick by the jersey um, mm. because tomorrow night's game against the Roosters uh, will determine pretty much if they get into the top eight. But they'll have seven new players in the squad. So despite this sort of unreserved apology, they're they're sticking by the jersey, and they'll definitely this this conversation is 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 far from over. There definitely will be fallout, and I think some pretty intense criticism towards those those players who decided to opt out.
0: Well, yeah, and I think that's unfair. I think, you know, in our society, if we're going to support religious freedom, we have to accept that not everyone is going to unite under these symbols. And that's also part of a diverse society that people um, have religious beliefs that maybe don't fit with the progressive agenda. And there should be ways for players like these guys to opt out of this without suffering the consequences of not being able to play for their club or the intense criticism they'll face in public now.
3: I think that the takeaway is, irrespective of where you sit on the issue, when diversity and inclusion issues are rolled out badly with poor consultation, um, especially at a week that's meant to be celebrating women and wives uh, and partners and mothers of the mm. NRL, this is the fallout. Everybody suffers. It's not inclusive. And the minorities that are, that are meant to be celebrated um, end up usually feeling worse off. So this is diversity done badly.
0: A new report has discovered almost half of Australian adults have already had COVID and that was by June before this new wave of infection kicked in.
3: Yeah, so this comes from a national survey looking at COVID-19 antibodies in blood donors and it found that 46% of us, so that's around nine and a half million people, have been infected, triple the number in February.
0: Yeah, so that was double the official numbers from um, rat and PCR tests, which I think confirms what most people were already thinking, that the testing numbers only represent, uh, you know, part of the infection, that the real numbers are way higher and it comes at a time where mm-hmm. we're dealing with this new wave of Omicron, uh, where hospitalisations are uh, at their highest level of the whole pandemic.
3: So you're going to hear a lot about inflation in the next 24 hours because the ABS quarterly figure is coming out today. And economists are tipping the ABS figures will show a rise from 5.1% to around 6.3%. It's the highest level in over 30 years.
0: Yeah, and the Reserve Bank has been saying it's going to keep going up to 7% by the end of the year, which is more than twice the speed of wage growth. So real wages are going backwards. And it comes at a time where the International Monetary Fund is warning that the global economy could soon be in recession because the three biggest economies, the US, China and the EU, are all slowing down. So tricky economic times uh, coming up, continued uh, inflation, low wages in real terms, and economic growth starting to go backwards, which means the main tool we have To deal with inflation, which is putting up interest rates, uh, is really going to smash an economy that's already weak. And that's, you know, happening in in many countries, including our own. And Kylie Jenner has come out criticising Instagram. She reposted a call that's um, getting a bit of traction at the moment. It says, make Instagram Instagram again. Stop trying to be TikTok. I just want to see cute pics of
3: my friends. So the new Instagram update has been pretty widely criticised because there are now reels on the main newsfeed and there's more ads and more suggested content from people you don't actually follow.
0: Yeah, so Kylie Jenner weighing in is a big deal in in a few ways. (laughs) One is because when she criticised Snapchat, um, she sent the share price down 6%, which was um, $1.3 billion in value. So that's got Instagram um, reacting. Its CEO, Adam Mozzeri, has come out and made a statement about this where he acknowledged um, the concerns people have about the way Instagram's changing but didn't back down on the move towards video and the so-called full-screen experience. I do believe that more and more of Instagram is going to become video over time. Yeah, so what do you think of this, Antoinette? Have you noticed the change with Instagram and what, what do you think about it?
3: Look, I have. And it is is—it is a little bit annoying. But I do have to say, I am one of those people who enjoys the TikTok videos because I'm not actually often on TikTok. So I see some of the best content move over to Instagram. But it does bother me that someone like Kylie Jenner is annoyed that she can't post selfies of herself um, and they won't be seen as widely as previously. Um, and that when she says something, the CEO responds.
0: The real thing I do find a bit annoying, and I've noticed that with Insta stories—they don't get the traction they used to, and I—I I sense that that's because they're trying to encourage you to put up reels instead. But I'm not as into that, and it's kind of annoying. And then the interface changes, and it feels kind of trashier. And I remember when it first started, it—it it was a real, um, a simplified experience compared to Facebook at the time. Mm. I think I got on, onto it in 2012. And Facebook was kind of getting noisy and messy and Instagram had this beautiful simplicity to it. Mm. It was just posting photos, but that's pretty much over now.
3: Yeah, and look, to be honest, I'm sick of seeing people dancing in their homes Mm. and I'm not keen for Instagram to become that.
0: (laughs) All right, Antoinette, we're going to catch you tomorrow. In a moment, we're talking to Sean Kelly about Scott Morrison's final act as Prime Minister.
1: I've been here to stop this boat, but in, in, in order for me to be there to stop those that may come from here, you, you need to vote Liberal Madison and Election Nationals Day. today. And in the interests of full transparency in the middle of an election campaign, the Labor Party was advised of this, and a statement has been issued uh, by uh, the Border Protection Authorities.
0: Yes, but it turned out that statement wasn't live on their website at the time when Scott Morrison said that. That is Scott Morrison giving his press conference on election day in what Labor have now called a shameful and disgraceful act, and it turned out to be his final press conference as Prime Minister Katrina Blowers. What a day.
4: Yeah, it certainly was. That morning on May 21, a Sri Lankan boat carrying 12 fishermen who were trying to reach Australia was intercepted off the west coast of Christmas Island. And what happened next has now become the subject of an in-depth report by the Home Affairs Secretary. And Scott Morrison's sharing of that info at the press conference was in fact a direct contradiction to a protocol he invented during his time as Immigration
1: Minister of not commenting on these very issues. Let's take a listen. I'm not going to go into on-water operations of what other potential partners have been engaged with. We're not going to go into the micro detail of these operational matters. Yeah, so
0: those are some classic examples of the way he used to handle those questions back in 2014, 15, those years where he was Immigration Minister. And that was, as you just heard before, a direct contradiction to what he did on Election Day. So let's find out what happened on that day, and how the Prime Minister's Office and the Home Affairs Minister's Office pressured the Home Affairs Department to release this information. Sean Kelly's a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald. He's a former Rudd advisor and the author of The Game, which is quite a critical biography of Scott Morrison. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. If we go back to Scott Morrison's time as Immigration Minister, he helped set up Operation Sovereign Borders, and we just heard the way he used to evade these questions about
2: on-water matters. What did he mean by that at the time? It was, in essence, a, a political term of art, a political term of convenience. It, what it really meant was that Scott Morrison could answer questions when he wanted to answer them uh, and not answer questions when he didn't want to answer them, which was you know, a very, very high proportion of the time. There was specific terminology around the protocol. The idea was that the government wouldn't give any information to people smugglers. But if you look at the press conferences that went on at the time, they are exercises in absurdity. And, you know, you don't have to take my word for that. You can look at what Press Gallery Doyen said at the time. Laurie Oak said that Scott Morrison was effectively giving journalists the finger. David Maher said that uh, Scott Morrison would have this little smile on his, his face at these press conferences, which essentially said to journalists, F off. These are really strong terms being deployed by people with decades of experience in reporting on Canberra politics to indicate just how much contempt Scott Morrison seemed to have for the principles of transparency. So it was fascinating and a little uh, gobsmacking to watch him on election day turn his back on that protocol and claim he was doing so in the interest of transparency.
4: All right, so let's cut now to Election Day. And this report from the Secretary of Home Affairs, Mike Pizzullo, reveals the pressure that his department was put under to release the info about a Sri Lankan asylum seeker boat that had been intercepted. When you look at it, it essentially reveals the way the PM's office asked the Minister for Home Affairs Office to get the department to release a statement in time for Scott Morrison's one o'clock press conference. Now, when you look at this series of events and the text messages that were flying around,
2: what is it that concerns you? If it was just one thing, uh, perhaps that would be okay or overlookable. But I, I think when you look through the timeline that the department provided, it is the flurry of things that concerns you that begins to overwhelm any sense that anything remotely proper or excusable was going on here. Firstly, you have the fact that Scott Morrison decides to turn his back on the on-water protocol that has been in place for about 10 years. Secondly, you have the fact that uh, they instruct the department not only to issue a statement, a bland neutral statement, but to brief out the information to specific journalists. And then in addition to tweet it out, with the aim obviously being to attain maximum amplification of this news on election day. Then you get the fact that they wanted it done, not in a couple of hours, not in an hour, but they wanted it done in 15 minutes. Then you have the fact that they are pressuring the department to release this information while the operation was still underway there is this amazing text message exchange included in the departmental report, which I think is worth reading Reading out loud. Yeah. The Minister for Home Affairs office texts the department, is it live? Question mark, question mark. PM is speaking. The department texts back, I'm refreshing. So are we. What on earth is the issue? It always takes a few minutes to go live. I have no idea how it works, but we can't influence it. We are calling IT. The minister's office texts back, a lot of people are furious nothing we can do, legitimately nothing, so my sincere apologies. So you can see the immense pressure that was being brought to bear on the department Mm. by the minister's office in service of the fact that the prime minister was up at the press conference at that moment and clearly wanted to comment on it. As it turned out, the prime minister was given the opportunity to comment on it because a journalist asked him a question about it. And the mysterious thing about this is that the journalist asked him the question about it, before the statement went live on the department's website. And of course, a little while later, you have the Liberal Party sending out literally millions of text messages to voters uh, telling them about the fact that a vote has been intercepted. I think it's very hard to argue that that is not a clear attempt to politicise the public service at exactly the time that is during election campaign when the public service is supposed to be left alone to do its job.
0: So you've written a lot about Scott Morrison's character flaws. You actually wrote a whole book on it. What do you think this episode says about him?
2: First and foremost, I I think it shows a determination to do uh, whatever it takes to secure victory. There is a real sense in Scott Morrison's prime ministership of a willingness to break with conventions, to ignore accountability mechanisms, to turn his back on any attempts to hold his government, to account for various misdemeanours, for uh, mistruths, or really I should just say lies, and a contempt of sorts for government. And uh, that contempt for government and the conventions of government and the institutions of government, I I think are really what you see election-based. Prime Ministers, politicians in general are desperate around Election Day. Most will do almost anything to win. And in my view, that is what the government was doing on Election Day.
0: So you said that this whole episode reflects uh, Scott Morrison's contempt for government or the integrity of government. And on that exact point, Scott Morrison's actually created another controversy since leaving office when he spoke at Margaret Court's church in Perth last weekend. And as part of a 50-minute sermon about anxiety
1: he said this. God's kingdom will come. It is in his hands. We trust in him. We don't trust in governments. We don't trust in the United Nations, thank goodness. We don't (laughs) trust in all of these things, fine as they might be, and, and as important as the role that they play. Believe me, I've worked in it, and they are important. But as someone who's been in it, if you are putting your faith in those things, like I put my faith in the Lord, you are making a mistake.
0: It's a common theme in these churches. I grew up in a similar one, to put your faith in God, not in man. So a sympathetic reading would say Morrison was just emphasising that idea and saying he had some experience in those fields.
2: Is that how you see it? Okay, I think a sympathetic reading here is is absolutely possible. And I think you have to see it in the context of God. Morrison's incredibly sincere faith, I and mean, that's one of the most important parts of his being, for a recently former prime minister to say what he said about government and the United Nations, with the emotion that you can hear in his voice there, the, I, I think it was a, was a pretty odd thing to do. Now, you could perhaps be even more charitably disposed towards it if you weren't aware of what Scott Morrison had previously said, but the truth is both his scepticism towards government and his scepticism towards the United Nations in that speech are of a piece with comments that he's made before. Uh, I think the United Nations comments are particularly odd. Uh, in 2019, he gave a speech. He talked about an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy. He talked about the world needing to avoid negative globalism. These are words that came perilously close to conspiracy theories about the United Nations and a a new world order, that phrase, unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy, Mm. uh, I think would really uh, ring true with some people on the far right. And then the comments about government, perhaps a little bit less odd, but I think are important in understanding Scott Morrison's general attitude to government. Scott Morrison's general attitude to government did seem to be that government shouldn't do very much. Uh, you know, he did go to the 2019 election, the election that he won, promising very, 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 very little. And then after that election, whenever he was pressed on doing more, he would say, we are going to do exactly what we promised at the election, which was essentially nothing. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and he said to people, he said, you know, people want to get uh, politics out of their faces. But I think it is at least interesting that this is a sentiment Scott Morrison returns to again and again at the start of his prime ministership, uh, at the midway point of his prime ministership and then after his prime ministership.
4: So I guess the big question is what do you reckon Scott Morrison's going to do next this week? He's in Tokyo for a conservative conference rather than sitting on the backbench in parliament. Uh, A lot of people are speculating now that that means he's not going to sit out the full term and he's on the way out. What do you think?
2: I genuinely have no idea. It is interesting the trip overseas. I think that Scott Morrison's sole real chance for a legacy, and I think that he understands this, is in the defence foreign affairs space, and really events need to go his way there. He took a strong line against China. I think that a lot of that was domestic political convenience, but events turned out to suit him, and the actions of the Chinese government since have, I think, suggested that some of Scott Morrison's stances were, were the right stances to take that will probably be the area that he tries to lean into.
4: That was Sean Kelly, who's a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and also the author of a biography about Scott Morrison. And Tom, I live in a marginal electorate in Brisbane and I was one of the ones who got that text Mm. message. And, you know, if we talk about legacies and, and what Scott Morrison will ultimately become known for, this isn't a great look for him, I don't think. It doesn't speak a great deal to his integrity.
0: No. For all the the critics that question his integrity, this was a perfectly symbolic episode of his willingness to throw out any sense of principle to try and win an election. And that's what people said about him time and time again. And also, as Barnaby Joyce said, that he would rearrange the truth into a lie. And this characterised it. And just, yeah, for the critics, this is almost perfectly poetic ending to his time as Prime Minister. Tomorrow in the briefing, we're going in deep on the manly Pride Jersey story.
3: Listener